Hello, everybody. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Bachmancier. There's going to be one more episode after this, but I'm really excited that this is all coming together and you're about to get, uh, yeah, beginning of the end. So without further ado, here's chapter 19. Bachmancier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 19. Three Angry Voices. Kells and Eleanor have arrived at the bookshop just as the daylight fades from the street outside. One last glimmer of winter sunshine bounces off the facade of the building across the street and casts a warm glow over Martin's face as he sits behind the counter. When the cord sounds from the door, he does not look up, not even with his single, independent eye. Instead, he breathes a deep sigh marks his place in his book, and sets it down with care. As his gaze rises to meet his friends, they can see that there is a blankness. In the studied calm of his face, there are whispers of confusion, and beneath them, fear. Hello, it's good to see you. He looks as though he would like to stand up, but seems held down by invisible strings. His face is puffy with the look of one who has not slept. Kells notices at once and rushes forward to hug him. At the last moment, she draws up short, the melancholy in his eyes warning her back. Martin, you look awful. Did you sleep? Kells makes a lame attempt to act as though she had rushed forward to examine a book on the end of the counter. No, I... Yes, I don't know. I fell asleep for a bit in my office, and then I woke up when... A noise from deeper in the bookshop catches Martin's attention, and he whirls toward it like a startled deer. They all freeze, sharing the cold fear that washes down spines primed for terror by the dead mouse. When the source of the sound proves to be a customer returning from the inky slopes of Martin's literary Everest, they all exhale as one. The woman does not seem to notice the feeling of foreboding that hangs over the trio. She prattles on to Martin about her excitement at finding this particular book on his shelves, the fine organization he keeps, and the general attitude of his shop. He thanks her with as much gentility as he can muster and ushers her out the door, bowing and smiling like an automaton. As soon as she has stepped across the threshold, he bolts the door and turns the placard around. Walking like a marionette, he moves back behind the counter and sits down on his chair. With exaggerated care, he picks up his book, opens it to his page, and drops his face down to regard the words inside it. Eleanor and Kells exchange a look before Kells clears her throat. Ahem. Uh, Martin? She says. Martin nods, a minuscule motion that seems to take more energy than he can muster. Kells, encouraged by his acknowledgement, presses just a little bit more. What happened? I... Some more mice. He does not look up from the book. Eleanor can see that he is focusing on it, pressing his mind into the bound forest between his hands, seeking escape, wishing himself into the story itself. His desire, and his obvious belief that such a thing may be possible, is heartbreaking to witness. How many more? Eleanor's voice feels as though she has not spoken for a month. The dry scratchings defy interpretation as words. Martin seems to understand her regardless. With a visible effort of will, he pulls his face from the book and sets it down. Too many. Like the one Slice killed yesterday? 
Hills asks. Yes, and they were eating an envelope. Martin sounds as though he wants to cry, his voice scarce above a whisper. Was it inscribed with dark curlicues and leaves? Kells is growing confident in her questions, as though these revelations are giving face to her fears and courage to her belly. Martin can only nod. Kells claps her hands together in excitement. She begins to pace, some part of her only able to process what is happening by thinking about it head on. As Kells follows knowledge and Martin seeks escape, Eleanor finds her own mind a kind of blank canvas. Kells forges on, her voice picking up speed as she reasons things out. We're dealing with a malvolent thing which has reanimated dead bodies and is seeking to do harm. For some reason, it's coming after us, here, in the bookstore. I think it has something to do with all these old letters. Maybe they called the mice? There was a bit of sand in the envelope, Kells, says Eleanor, a glimmer of hope in her voice at this new piece of understanding. Aha! So the evil dead mice want the letters. Kells is ecstatic with the revelation. So, what are we going to do? asks Martin, his hands opening and closing, a compulsive gesture he seems unaware of. They find the book on the counter and pick it up, twisting the paperback into rolls and curves. Martin, you said there were a lot of mice, right? Kells taps her chin, a shadow of her mischievous smile playing across her lips. He nods again. She cocks her head. Why were you so afraid of a bunch of mice? It's not because they were dead, is it? It's something else, isn't it? Martin's hands tear the book in half as though he were a circus strongman. In a voice that sounds as though he has to force out every word, he says, They shaped themselves into a body. Kells nods, as though this is the most natural thing in the world. She turns on her heel and marches toward the door, saying, I have to run home and get something. Do you need me to go with you? Eleanor calls after her. No need. I'll be right back. Don't start the party without me. With that, Kells is out the front door and dashing off into the night. Martin groans and rests his head on the counter. There is a cord from the door. Martin sighs and stands, weary. Seems Kells forgot to lock the door she left. <sighs> Typical. Should be worried about security with everything that's been go- Theo is standing just inside the door. Eyes wild, terrified. He sways. Martin runs toward him, catches his arm, and guides him to a chair. Theo, what's going on? The man is shaking, his body racked with convulsions. He seems to be concentrating as hard as he can to hold on to consciousness, his eyelids fluttering. Theo's pulse is visible at his temples, an angry throbbing matched beat for beat by the clenching and unclenching of his jaw. Martin. I'm here. What's wrong, Theo? Do you need a hospital? No, I don't. No, it's my... I've done... I've done... Shh, Theo, don't try to talk. No! Theo's eyes snap wide open and he snatches Martin's hand, his grip so tight the bookseller winces. You have to understand. I don't know what... I didn't realize that I'd lose that poor child. This is all my sins remembered. This is the punishment for what I've done. I cheated her. I won all the games. I looked outside and this is... He convulses, his whole body stiffening, 
his hold nearly breaking the delicate bones in Martin's hand. Something moves under the skin of Theo's arm. Martin leaps back with a yelp. The tattered prophet begins to cry, eyes darting back and forth, pleading. Eleanor, says Martin, looking down at Theo's arm, still held outstretched. Yes, she asks, already knowing what he means to say. Get away from him! Martin's warning is not needed. They are both already beating a hasty retreat to the far end of the room, eyes never leaving the thrashing man. Theo is a vision of pain and agony. His tears are now blood. Even more blood is trickling from his quivering lips, which are mouthing something over and over again. Gathering what must have been a tremendous will, Theo manages to speak one final time. I'm sorry, he whispers. His entire body goes still, eyes rolling into his head and closing. His mouth pops open, and from it peeks the face of a single, dead-eyed mouse. Satan's whiskers, Martin breathes. The mouse leaps forward, and in the twinkling of an eye is joined by thousands of others, all leaping from the empty mouth or clawing up out of the skin to emerge bloody and irascible. They mill about for a moment and then turn as one to stare up at Martin and Eleanor. Martin? Eleanor whispers. I know! Run! He shouts as they both beat a hasty retreat for the front door. Eleanor reaches into her coat as she runs, pulling out a writhing grayish mass. With a bellow, she tosses it at the oncoming wave of mice. None too pleased to have been awoken from a nap, Slice lands amid the writhing mass and begins striking out, left, right, and center. Tattered mouse shells fly in all directions, spilling the inky sand that fills them. In a flash, the mass of Rodentia swarms up and over Slice, enveloping the ancient cat in a gray mound. All is still again, for a moment. Then a low, rumbling growl can be heard, almost too low for a cat so small and slight. From under the pile, Slice emerges with a new vigor, eyes flashing and teeth gleaming in godlike wrath. Slice screams, in that eerie way possessed of cats, which sounds almost like a human voice. Slice is half out now covered again, then out save for a few mice still clinging doggedly to its flanks. Slice begins to run, not away, but in circles, weaving around, up, over, and under. And so begins one of the strangest imaginable battles. A mad cat, too angry to die, against an army of mice which never will. The mice keep trying to mass themselves into something, but each time they do, Slice is there, crashing through them with vicious joy. As the battle rages, shelves topple like trees in the wake of a monstrous beast, avalanches of books making a deep scree across the floor, and everywhere the tattered remains of the mice and their sand. And now, through the cacophony of collapsing furniture and tearing pages, comes a new sound. For the first time in more than a quarter of a century, Slice is purring. Martin and Eleanor stand in horrified fascination, watching the cat's furious showdown with the mice. There is a heavy thump and a small explosion from the depths of the shop, and the air begins to fill with smoke. The scent of fire brings Eleanor to her senses. She grabs at Martin, trying to tear him away. He is trembling, muttering to himself as he stares at the devastation as though he is unable to comprehend it. Come on, she shouts at him, shaking his shoulders. His eyes snap into focus, and instead he shoves her towards the door. Just as they reach it, he leaps up and grabs the delicate instrument from its cradle above the doorway. 
He almost drops it as he lands, but steadies himself and hands it to Eleanor. Go! I'll be right behind you! He dashes off into the depths of the store before she can argue. Eleanor steps out onto the sidewalk, cradling the instrument. She's about to breathe a sigh of relief when she looks up. Eleanor is face to face with the dead-eyed dog walker she has seen before. The dogs are as surprised as she is, but the human gives no sign of having seen her as the beasts begin to snarl. Eleanor screams in horror as the dog walker collapses into another tidal wave of the dead mice. They had filled the corpse like an empty sack stuffed with wriggling potatoes. The three dogs stay in place, uncaring or perhaps oblivious to their keeper's disintegration behind them. The random movements of the mice gain purpose and they swarm over the leashes onto the dogs, coating them in a silent, skittering mass. The things which Eleanor realizes had never been dogs are now covered in those which will never again be mice. The creatures begin to move forward, limbs lengthening, necks snapping up and back, bodies twisting. Transformations with no end, no final form, just ever more mangled and twisted dogs. They howl but it is not with their mouths. Instead, their empty eye sockets widen, hungry. The eye sockets rend and tear as they stretch to join with the dog's mouths and become a single, gaping orifice, roaring and snapping. Eleanor reaches into her coat and pulls out her dueling pistols. Mouth set, she empties them both into the advancing dogs, the bullets rending bits of flesh and sending viscera flying in all directions. They keep coming. No longer creatures animated by blood and breath, but by sand. From somewhere, as if on the wind, though it is a still night, comes a voice. What harm can befall us from even the peril of your gun? We are well made flesh. You cannot kill us with mere lumps of lead tossed with fire. Eleanor feels tears at the corners of her eyes as the guns begin to click, now useless in her hands. What else does she have? There is always something. In her mind, she rushes through the thousands of items in her pockets. Her hand jumps to her special pocket, the little bit of card, folded in half and full of holes, which rests there. She shrinks back as the creatures howl again. The sound is triumphant. From the darkness of the nighttime streets comes an answering roar, angry and thrice-voiced. The creatures freeze, indecisive in their intent to do harm. A fourth voice joins the chorus that of Kells, screaming out all of the pent-up rage born of a defiant spirit too long held back beyond the breaking point. Nothing, not the dogs melting, not the voice, not even those horrid mice, is as frightening to Eleanor as the scream Kells is making. The little juggler charges forward out of the shadow of the alleyway across the street, arms a spinning blur, in graceful arcs, just inches in front of her face, are three running chainsaws. The noise of the saws revving is deafening. A distant part of Eleanor's mind notices that their triggers are held down with duct tape. Kells stops screaming, the sound rendered even more hair-raising in absentia. Her next words are loud, projected with the skill of a veteran performer. I don't know what you are, but I'm pretty sure a running chainsaw will fuck you up. The three not-dogs pause, turning to face this new assailant. They sluice forward, moving wrong on legs that bend in random places. Spider legs, noodle legs, monster movie legs. 
Kells throws one chainsaw high into the air and charges forward, spinning the other two in a roaring windmill as smoke pours from the overworked engines. She neatly decapitates two of the dogs and tosses the pair of chainsaws upward. The third chainsaw has made a leisurely arc through the air, almost too slow to be real. She does not even have to move her hands to catch it. Kells slashes back and forth, then leaps backward, catches the other saws, and continues to juggle all three of them. Come on! Kells roars. I can't think of anything badass to say, but screw you! I'm juggling chainsaws! The dogs are now a mess of slashed skin and ripped innards. The sand continues to animate the corpses, but they are shattered vessels, lacking the cohesion to be proper hosts. With fury to rival Slice, Kells is dispatching the creatures and their attendant rodents. They stagger at her as she repeats her attack, throwing one chainsaw up in the air and slashing out with the other two. Kells is tiring, though, and the creatures can see it. They break away and slump over. The sand rushes out of them like beer from a tipped stein, spreading out like spilled liquid. For a moment it sits, an inky, rippling pool full of malice, until the sand shoots upward. Like a lightning strike, it forms a sort of tree ten feet tall, fractal. The tree's branches begin to twitch, and then to thrash. Like a child's nightmare of an insect, it comes at Kells. The sparkling sound of breaking glass heralds the appearance of two steamer trunks pushed through an upper-story window. They land on top of the creature, one after the other, with satisfying thuds. Sand sprays everywhere. The trunks are followed by a rope, and Martin shimmies down it, alighting on the larger of the two boxes, looking the world's most reluctant swashbuckler. He dusts off his hands and says, Hello, looks like you two could use a bit. He does not get to finish what he was saying as the trunk is tossed aside. The living sand is now slashing here, striking there, a thousand eels, a massive tentacle, the choking hair of Medusa. Kells grins. Martin! Eleanor! Catch! Two of the chainsaws go soaring up through the air. The rotation is perfect to present a handle at just the right angle for the intended recipient. Martin catches his without dropping it, the pleasure on his face betraying his own surprise at the feat. Eleanor just manages to set down the instrument before she snatches her chainsaw from the air, as though she has always done such things. Well then, says Eleanor, let's see what we can do. On three! One! shouts Kells. Two! Eleanor's voice joins her. Three! they yell in unison as they charge forward. Martin's own shout of three has a noticeable delay but he still manages to wade into the scrum, slashing at the whipping sand as best he can. They put up a brave fight, but one by one the chainsaws are snatched away, their innards invaded and ripped apart. Bits of shattered metal go flying in all directions, several missing Eleanor's face by mere inches. The sand reaches out, the branches almost becoming hands, and lifts them off the ground. For a moment, all three of them are held struggling above the street. Then... As though taking malicious pleasure in it, the thing tosses first Eleanor, then Kells through the front windows of the now-burning bookshop. Martin is not so lucky. He is flung against a brick pillar between a pair of windows, hitting his head and falling to the ground. Stunned, the wind knocked out of him. He does not rise. Inside, the flames ignited during Slice's battle with the mice have made a playground of the building, finding eager nests amid the books and shelves. Eleanor has been fortunate, her fall broken by a soft avalanche of paperback books. In a daze, her hand goes back to her pocket. 
she is comforted to find Kells's card still there. The ever-limber Kells has managed to land almost on her feet and is already dashing around the front of the store shouting for her. Eleanor tries to call out and finds her voice weak, cracking. She takes a deep breath and manages to cry a faint, Kells! Kells is by her side in a twinkling, helping her to her feet. Are you all right? Eleanor shakes her head. Not in the least, but I think I can walk. Good. We have to get out of here. Eleanor's hand is still in her pocket. She can feel something else there, next to Kelsa's business card. Of all the pockets in her coat, there is one that is the pocket. Her pocket. She seldom puts anything there, save the most special items. Eleanor knows the entire contents of every pocket in her coat, and yet... This is something she was not expecting. There is a ring, a large ring, with something attached to it. She pulls it out of her pocket and sees that the ring has a small tag on it. On one side of the tag is the odd circle with the dent. On the other side are the words, No fear for true hearts. The ring is attached to a light silver chain. Without thinking, Eleanor pulls the chain, like a skydiver. The lining of her coat comes out and keeps coming. She has pulled as far as she can, but the lining is still flowing out of its own accord. Faster than her eyes can follow, the lining of her coat billows out like a parachute and settles over her. The bottom closes around her and constricts. She feels herself lifted upward and then compressed. Not crushed, but compressed, as if she were a sheet of paper being gently folded, the edges smoothed. The feeling builds and builds. She's getting smaller and smaller, or perhaps bigger. And then there is nothing and darkness. Oh my goodness. So that was chapter 19. There is one more chapter coming next week, chapter 20, and then this entire tale will be done. I'm so excited to hear what you folks think of the story as a whole. I know one of our, the listeners to this podcast has said that they gave it four stars in their review on iTunes and they would bump it up to five once the story was finished. So, I, I mean, I, I, I hope we get that 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 bump up to five because, uh, I mean, I guess it could go down. Maybe I should stop counting my chickens before they hatch. But, uh, yeah, I'm so excited to be completing this project. I know there's been a lot of delays and a lot of ups and downs in terms of when episodes have launched this was not supposed to take this long, but I ended up having a couple periods of wanting to take a minute, fix a couple things, sort of change some things and make some scenes a little bit more clear. So thank you so much for sticking with the story uh, this long. If you've made it here, we're almost done. So hopefully you're with me to the end. Pochmancier is entirely listener supported. You can go over to www.patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks or patreon.com slash strangely if you'd like to help support the art I make and the things that I do. I'm not entirely sure when it's going to happen or how, but I plan on releasing this entire audiobook with some additional bonus content and um, possibly some added recorded music and things as an audiobook on CD. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things was going to the library and getting one of those books on tape 
or later books on CDs, you know, like Recorded Books Incorporated presents an unabridged recording of, you know, like I, I always, I love those. That was one of my favorite ways to experience stories as a kid because you get these readers like uh, Nigel Lambert or Jim Dale or uh, 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 John Lee who just would, they'd imbue these characters with such life and, and, and it, would, it was just this joyous thing. So I'm just so happy that I've gotten to make a thing like that in the way that a lot of my idols did. So at some point I'll be doing some sort of Kickstarter or something like that, that you folks can own your very own physical copy of the CDs, the, the book on CD with a, some artwork and things. So stay tuned for that. I will see you all next week for the final chapter Chapter 20, The Beach.